Oof, we are three for three with these Sopranos finales. Yikes. Oh, what a good one. This is season three, episode 13 of the Sopranos podcast, Ungrateful Heart. Chain of command is very important in our thing. That's a quote from Tony Soprano in the third season finale, season three, episode 13 of The Sopranos entitled The Army of One. It is written by David Chase and Lawrence Connor and directed by the great John Patterson. Let's uh, introduce ourselves for the unacclaimed at this point. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. Jordan Hugh, our resident academic, I kind of your play-by-play host, and Paul, of course, a fat fuck with see-through socks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this finale is excellent in continuing. The, it's, it's a much different episode than our penultimate. These two, I think Jordan and I were having a conversation earlier yeah. in the week that these episodes, I don't want to say don't pair well, because they do. They work great in succession as the end of this season, but they're just totally different beasts yeah mm-hmm. yeah whereas the last episode had a lot of rapid fire excitement kind of edge of your seat what the hell's gonna happen holy shit this was a much more reflective mm-hmm. marinating episode and the sopranos does these well where something where like the big things kind of happen in the first 20 minutes and then the back half we're just resolving it and letting everything marinate and letting all of our themes and storylines coalesce into the delicious entree that season three was. Mm-hmm. And uh, it works. It works uh, as a whole. It leaves you feeling something. It leaves you wanting more, but it leaves you feeling completely satisfied. They do break the formula set by the previous two seasons, wherein the new antagonist introduced, uh, Ralphie kind of took the Richie April spot and he's still with us. So that's interesting. But we're going to break this episode down beat by beat. I'm so excited. Initial thoughts on the Army of One. Yeah, this is um, an amazing episode. It is so different from the previous episode of Morfu. And if we're talking in terms of momentum, it's, it's bizarre because you have these these two high-impact, high-energy episodes, um, Pine Barrens and then a Morfu that kind of lead up into this one. And it, it's not that this episode isn't good. It's, it's great. It's, it's amazing. It's just the energy, as you said, Chris, is, is so, so different um, coming off of particularly a Morfu, which is explosive and uh, f- uh, it's fiery, right? Um, this episode is the ice, <laughs> right? This is the, the ice on that burn. Um, it's a much more reflective episode. It's it's it really lets you kind of sit with these characters. But the way it caps things off is filled with so much intrigue. Like I, you know, it's like it it makes you wish you could just tune immediately into season four. Which thankfully, since we're viewing this twenty years later, we sure can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this episode is a lot of well. It's fun in some ways. It's very dark and, in fact, quite painful in others. I'm glad one among many reasons in doing this podcast with you guys is that I get to tell on myself a bit. I still remember 20 years ago watching Amor Fu and then watching this finale. And I didn't really like this finale. thought it was maybe, again, like too methodical. It was too slow. Didn't like the style of the ending with the songs. The joy of coming back to it over the years as your perceptions change. Maybe you grow or if you're lucky like me and you have good friends who will gently challenge you to re- to reassess things you get to come back and so it's been a joy to come back to this episode this is a season finale that i feel like kind of 
doesn't behave itself. <laughs> it it deals with a lot of the strands, but it doesn't set them to rest. Everything feels very up in the air to me, which again, as Jordan mentioned, is the forward for the next season. It's very conscious that we're dealing with threats and problems that are ongoing. The show insists that it's still a black comedy in this episode, even though we're dealing with the death of a young man, which is quite sad. I think it's very gutsy. Yeah. And I think that uh, everybody involved is to be commended uh, because of rising to that the level of that challenge. And I think, as you guys both mentioned, more reflective an episode. And I think the reason I chose the quote for our episode that about chain of command and the army is that there's this pull between, I think, being part of a whole and being an independent entity and the the various armies of one are in effect at war with themselves in this episode. They're pulled in so many directions by the hypocrisies of their lives and their world that again, they maybe become perplexed as to what is real. Uh, it's very powerful. It's well executed. This is the best season of the show so far. Yeah, I think it's also a challenging episode in that a lot of it depends on, mm, do I want to say this? Yeah, I think I do. Kind of how invested, how much, how invested were you in Jackie Jr. as a character? Do you know what I mean? I think if you were always very dismissive of this character, then maybe this is not a satisfying finale for you. But if you're just here for the whole show, or even if you just enjoyed that character, I think this is, this is fine. I agree. Uh, I think Paul had a, a beautiful assessment of what this episode is or, or having struggled with, um, you know, is this episode good or not upon initially viewing it? It, it is. It's just, it, it kind of challenges what your expectations are as a viewer because television trains you, drama trains you to recognize the new villain, follow them through a season, and then they are dispatched. You you see how your hero, in our case, Tony, will overcome the new threat. And in this case, it's almost more like, it's more lifelike, right? It's like, you know what? Sometimes these villains are not just in your life for a season. Sometimes they linger. And we finally have a lingering villain in Ralphie Cifaretto, which um, actually excites me more than if we had killed him in a big bloodbath at the end. Yeah. Yeah, very well said, gentlemen. And I couldn't agree more with all of the things you're saying about it being unconventional, unsatisfying in a quote-unquote way, not actually unsatisfying, but just not tying everything together in a bow. Things are very much still in play for a season four. And look, whatever your opinions on Jackie Jr. as a character, I still say this works because Tony, you care how it affects everybody else. You care what it meant to Tony to keep this kid out of this situation. You care what it means to Meadow, to Rosalie, poor Rosalie, God, right? So there's a lot going on here. <clears throat> Plus, not to mention everything else, Tony having to deal with this situation with AJ, great timing that he's worried on a deep level about the future for AJ, which is very much left in flux by the end of this episode. That is, that's a story that comes out in this episode and isn't resolved at all. So we're going to get to it. Let's start from the top. Speaking of AJ, we uh, see that he's broken into the school with his friend. They pee on the wall. They're stealing a test. They, I guess they stayed probably after hours to steal a test and do well on it, geometry. Which... Was anyone reminded of uh, Matt and Sean waiting for a safe and taking a shit on the floor? Because I was. Ooh, yeah, that's nice. Tony talking about AJ in his business, he'd never make it. That's kind of, I think he sees those patterns. It's a very good pull, Jordan. Absolutely. The defecation in the scene of the crime 
That's uh, can't be an accident. No, not, not an accident. So they steal the test and then uh, Jackie is hiding out in a project and Booten. We're getting, this is all kind of rapid fire coming at us right as from the get go. Got to mention it. Got to mention it. He went on to become a massive star who we unfortunately lost this year. Michael mm-hmm. K. Williams. Let's talk about him real quick. Omar himself. Yes. I think this is, uh, I don't know, is this pre-Omar? I think the wire started in 2002. This is pre-Omar. This mm-hmm. might have been a sort of de facto screen test in a way, I imagine, for Omar. This is probably his first bid with HBO, unless I'm mistaken, and must have liked his look, and Lord knows yeah. he's a He's a world-class talent. He went on to world do a lot, with, lot, a lot of great work and a lot of great work with HBO. I'm actually in the middle of a season four of a Boardwalk Empire rewatch. That's a whole different animal of a show, but he was excellent in that as Chalky. He was easily one of the top two characters in The Wire as Omar Little. And here he is as this uh, character looking out for Jackie, who's putting him up. I guess it's his daughter, Lena, he, that he plays chess with later on. And this is where Jackie's hanging out. But Omar, uh, Michael K. Williams, he's got a great look. Uh, that's That scar, of course, is a real scar. But uh, yeah, so this is where Jackie's hiding out. And we get Paulie and his mother, Nucci, going to Green Grove Retirement. So these are our first three beats, which is AJ at the school, Paulie and his mother, which is going to lead to something else, and Jackie hiding out in, in Booton. Yeah, and, and these are all kind of comical beats. These all kind of are cute uh, in a way. Yeah. I know that the Jackie beat, of course, is a bit more serious, but these are friendly characters. Ray Ray and Lena are ultimately friendly. Mm. Yep. Uh, and they give him the nickname Mr. X. Mm-hmm. Also, I like, I love, Lily and I are big, big fans of Polly's mother, Nucci. She's adorable. She's so sweet. Uh, of course, the juxtaposition between the way Tony's mother reacted to being yep. put in this facility compared to her. She starts crying. Oh, no. Are you upset? My son lets me live in a place like this. He's such a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the reaction to Parisian night. Oof, my own. They don't eat snails, do they? <laughs> Makes Lily and I laugh every time. It's so cute. It's so funny. This is an adorable woman, adorable. This, this actress. And. Oof, uh, Tony always talked about how expensive everybody always mentioned it's the most expensive retirement home in New Jersey. But I did have to take note of the number, especially because we're dealing with negotiations eight grand, later. Eight grand a month. Eight, eight grand, grand a month. month with a 40 grand deposit. 40 grand deposit. And this was 20 years ago. You can only imagine what that place costs now. Jesus. I actually drove past it. The actual it's not called Green Grove. It's Green something. It's in Montclair. It's in a very ex- nice part of Montclair. Jesus, God, this is uh, no wonder Paulie's uh, stressing about money here. But he oh, wants, yeah. yeah, but the relationship between Paulie and his mother is very clear from minute one. He's going to take care of this woman. And this is this is his quest right now. We get this conversation in the kitchen where Jackie is supposedly dealing hard drugs. Carmela's comforting Tony. You tried with that boy. So this narrative that Jackie was involved in hard drugs is permeating out. The seed was planted last episode. So what's going to happen? The stage is set for him to either be returned or killed. And it's all in flux right now. Then we get this hilarious. Tony has his mother's gift for finding good news, doesn't he? Yeah. Like he picks up the newspaper and he's like, this kid is dead from crack. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Dude, this really runs in the family, doesn't it? That putrid fucking rotten soprano gene. Absolutely. Carmel says you tried with that boy. Let's talk about this. Did Tony really try? Could he have done more? Does he have reason to feel guilt here? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, Tony could have done much more. Uh, listen, here's the issue. It, it's complicated. Tony could have certainly done more. Uh, Jackie needed someone to really mentor him. But also, we can't take all the blame away from Jackie. This is what this episode deals with. Yeah. This is the crux of the Army of One, is what is the responsibility of the child and what are they responsible for? Uh, how, how does one parent children? Uh, is it this kind of like, are you, are you more nurturing or are you more traditional in this regard? We can lay some of this at Tony's feet. He could have done more for Jackie. He ultimately probably could have saved Jackie. And I think something productive could have been done. But we have to put some blame on Jackie for his own decisions and how he um, has led his life. I, he did kill someone that did not deserve to die. Yeah. Uh, at the very least, he he killed Sunshine. That really happened. And uh, does that mean Jackie deserves to die? I, I don't know. I'm not willing to actually pass a death sentence on the character, but I don't think Tony really tried, but I don't think Jackie really tried either. Yeah, and it's a tragedy on that level because of that. And we're going to talk more about how many how the many of these characters failed Jackie. Go ahead, Paul. I think that it, these are all excellent points, and it is complex, as you pointed out. Tony will not remember in six months that he helped organize Jackie's murder, I don't think. And I think he will be able to tell himself a story wherein he did everything he could, everything to help this kid. And he will forget willfully, conveniently, those things wherein he did not try hard enough, in which he was not a solid role model. Jackie's got to accept, we have to put that responsibility, as you guys said, on Jackie up to a point, but if we are dealing with who his role models are, as disgusting as Ralphie is, Ralphie's role modeling also dovetailed with who Ralphie is. Tony saying, don't do this in spite of who Tony is, even Jackie understood the hypocrisy of that. So all of this is coming together. Tony isn't foolish. I think he gets it, and it leaves him with this guilt. Well said, Paul. So we get this meeting scene with Ralphie, Paulie, and Silvio. <laughs> I really like the line, kind of in the rears in the respect department, right? Or, you know, you know, that's, that's, that's great. So such they are like a world-class ball busters. They really are. Yeah. 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 These are great. I honestly, we're dealing with very heavy, awesome subject matter and great acting around the board, but I would watch hours of paulie and ralphie scenes they oh my god you know it's, they're great pepper a little silvio in there uh we're gonna get to the particularly funny sit down that happens later I, I there's so many great it's one of those it was one of those scenes every once in a while we get a scene in the show where i actually have to pause to catch up on my notes with the funny lines that are being dropped. <laughs> so they're having this argument basically paulie set up a job for ralphie Gave him the key. It was a check cashing joint. The safe was open. It was a, we were getting the sense it was a real, Paulie just laid up the ball real nicely. Ralphie and his crew showed up, stole a bunch of money. And uh, Paulie wants his 50K. Paulie wants $50,000. Ralphie's talking five grand for a finder's fee, maybe. Gets this call from Vito, this hilarious call from Vito, and pretends it's Tony just to, just to rub Paulie and Silvio the wrong way that he's getting a phone call from Tony. Oh man, I'm not really doing anything right now. <laughs> that, that veto call in is so funny. Just everything <laughs> he says, looking at, at some birds just, and Ralphie, <laughs> Ralphie selling it is so good. It's such a funny scene. 
Yes. And by the way, a little more exposition drop. They know exactly where Jackie is. He's not hiding at all. He, they, Silvio flat out says he's in a housing project in fucking Boonton. They know exactly where he is. <laughs> it's not even a mystery. We saw in season two, going back again to Matt and Sean, how cheap life is in this world when somebody has information that can score them points with the boss. Pussy found out where Matt Bevilacqua was hiding for 20 bucks while he was sitting there eating salami and satrials. So we don't need to see how this happens, how the sausage is made. We know somebody's tipping them off. It's very easy. Somebody's, you know, getting money to report the location of Jackie April and they know where he is. Ralphie's just being indecisive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's it, yeah. The blame, the blame here is is on Ralphie for sure. He just doesn't. I mean, it's a, it's a rough position. I, I don't like Ralph as a person. I think he's funny, but I this is a tough situation. Yeah. As as funny as these bits are, it seems as though this scene does underline, I guess, this, as you said, Chris, this very serious subject matter. What Tony was, I think, sending out the signals with sort of enigmatically in the last episode here is simply made plain. Ralphie, because of his stature and his status, must kill Jackie Jr. He has to have him killed. These are his cohorts. These are his equals in the business, and they are shitting on him rightfully because of this stall. He can't keep this up. Yes, exactly. And this situation is going to continue to perpetuate. The next scene is Jackie calling Tony on the phone. He's in tears. He's begging for some kind of lifeline here. Tony cuts him off. I don't want to know where you are. I don't want to know anything. Talk, talk to Talk yeah. to your stepfather was what he said. <laughs> Tony, Tony actually seems annoyed in this scene, which is so wild to me because it's life and death for the other person. And yeah. like Tony, Tony can't be bothered. Basically, it is very funny, despite the desperate circumstance that Jackie's in. It's just Tony. Uh, the the he's playing. He's annoyed. He's what are you calling me for? Get out of here! I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to be talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He's you know he's asleep. It's yeah very funny, very comic, but also. You can simultaneously laugh at Tony's reaction, but also feel the dread in Jackie. This is his only chance to make this right. And Tony is just giving him nothing here, nothing to grab onto. We see the despair after Jackie hangs up. He mentions, though, an interesting exchange they have. When you and my father did the same thing, you got forgiven. And Tony says, well, think about it. You see if you can tell me the difference. The difference, of course, being that I don't believe in the Tony Jackie April story. Guns were discharged. Anybody was killed. They weren't probably hopped up on crank. Who knows? But it was a it was just a different scenario. They didn't shoot at made guys taking someone's money, making sure the right people get paid off. Christopher didn't get killed hijacking calmly trucking and from junior in season one. Brendan did, but Brendan wasn't close to anybody. However, had Christopher shot at junior or something that would be a no-brainer that's it you're dead so that's that's the difference here and jackie jackie fucked up this is not something he's going to be able to fix with a phone call and he's realizing yeah. that he can't pull the my father's string anymore he you know that that bullshit is is gone mm-hmm. here's an interesting question just for speculation let's say that the, the robbery goes down the same we can argue about whether jackie would even end up in this position if jackie were still alive well, let's say everything goes down exactly as it did, but Jackie is still boss of the family. Does what what changes here? Oh, if Jackie Senior was still the boss and Jackie yeah. Junior pulled this shit and still killed Sunshine and all that, 
Yeah. Um, man, I don't know. I uh, there's there's no way that a hit would have been put out on Jackie if he was the boss's son. That's that's crazy. I mean, there would have been some kind of crazy fucking apology tour. I think Jackie Jr. has to go away. Uh, you know, somebody's getting paid, but it's it's bad. I, yeah. Nothing about that robbery was good. Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's just it's just unfortunate. It's yeah. Jackie's fault. Yeah. Actually, this reminded me, this question, Chris, that you've put to us reminds me a bit of Blood Money or the episode we recorded, Blood Money, uh, A Second Opinion, when Chris making these certain complaints, at some level, they're like daring him to complain, it seems like, because you have this stature, you have a connection to Tony. My thought was if this robbery had gone maybe when Jackie Jr. was alive and or if it had gone off without a hitch. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets shot at. Again, if you were going to complain about it at a certain level, you would have been told, you know, you got outsmarted. What are you bitching about? Yeah. Like, no fundamental rules were broken. Can you get some of your money back? Sure. Are we going to put out a hit on this kid? Of course not. Yeah. Here, everything went to hell. Yeah. Yeah, it was a clusterfuck. So Tony goes right to Ralph, sits him down, puts it right, puts it right back on him. Again, he is not giving anybody an out here. Tony is using his boss privileges to remove himself from the situation. And he's definitely taking a little bit of joy in putting Ralph in this spot. But it is ultimately Ralph's call, as Tony has laid out. And he says, you know, we, we talked about this. You're going to give him a pass, but he should know. More is lost by indecision than wrong decision. And this is Lily was sitting with me watching this and she said, this is good management. It is, you know, make Mm -hmm. a fucking do it one way or the other, whatever you're going to do, do it either fucking tell him so he can stop calling me begging, crying at my house or just kill him already enough. Yeah. And, and they're not going to, they're not going to belabor the point on this show. Not in this, not in this episode. Yeah. Ralphie is also making Tony crazy money, by the way, that scene I believe starts with, Ralphie handing over $300,000 from the Esplanade project. Um, So, you know, Ralphie's like, I can't imagine someone even competes with him for top earner in the family. Like he, this guy just pulls in tons of cash. Yeah. And Um, it gives you, it it gives you a good pick. It gives you a good picture of why so much of his bullshit is suffered. Because I was just going to say that I was like, why put up with a psychopath like Ralphie? And then I was like, this scene starts with him handing him three hundred thousand dollars. That's why you put up with Ralphie. Yeah, it's it's good management. I I also am a little angry with Tony because I do feel like he really should make the decision with Jackie Jr. But he's exploiting the rules of the chain of command where it should be Ralphie. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, it, it, is, it is Ralphie, but it's also Tony. You know, well, what I mean? let's let's be clear here. It's Ralph's responsibility because Ralph's the captain. Ralph's yeah. his Ralph's dating or involved with his mother. But to be clear, if Tony were to step in and say, nobody touches this kid, I'll I'll handle it. There would be shit talking. There'd be Christopher pissing in somebody's ear and there would be like, I can't fucking believe Tony let this guy go. But he could. That's an yeah. option he could take. And he's putting it on Ralphie. Right. I assume that Tony doesn't because he knows it was it was wrong. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Uh, you guys are so dead on with this. It, it really feels like it, we're getting into the complexity here. And it, it feels to me like Tony's plausible deniability is very important. 
He's still talking like it's not his idea. Whatever the final decision, it should happen in a timely fashion. That means do it yesterday. Do it now. But Tony, I don't think, wants to be anywhere near this. I think, again, if Meadow ever sniffed it out, it would be the end of that relationship. Um, And there is sentiment. There wasn't there's no longer sentiment with Jackie. He goes. But Tony's not letting go of his daughter. Forget it. Um, So I think that kind of that might filter into the way that Tony plays this scene, which I agree with you guys is sort of both great management. And Tony has me sort of maddened. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. This next scene, I'm I'm smiling. <laughs> this actor they got for the principal at AJ's school, he made me laugh. So good. Uh, back when he AJ vandalized the pool wall, <laughs> his deep voice is very resonant. The wall of pride. <laughs> you know what kind of animals? So he's he's got me laughing already. That's a very good, very good impersonation of him, by the way, Chris. Thank well you. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to do another one in a second here. He oh, has please. them. He has them in his office. Uh, and the AJ and his friend have the shit eaten grins. They think they've gotten away with it. This is a great scene. This is a great scene for an acting class because there's a great turn in it and it's short. And, you know, so this is a fun scene here. These, these actors must've had a good time with this. He's like, both of you got 96%. So I'd love to call your parents and share the, share this with them. And you know, <laughs> he, he suspects it. He's doing a great job here where look, AJ's a knucklehead. This other kid's a knucklehead. They don't do well. And all of a sudden they both get the exact same grade. They know somebody was in the school because he says to them, I don't have to waste time with you. It was both your urines. Mr. Lukomov spent hours cleaning. (laughs) 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 And they immediately break down crying or AJ's friend breaks down crying. (laughs) And AJ thinks the problem is that he peed. I was the one who peed first. He was the one who peed first. Fucking hilarious. But they just come out with it. Meadow lets him know later on in the episode that it takes weeks for it. It was both your DNA. The DNA was the DNA was an exact match. (laughs) (laughs) So So fucking funny. I love this scene and they're busted. That's it. And the scene ends with AJ's friend crying and AJ making excuses. The principal sits back, but we know from the pool episode that AJ is on a last strike kind of thing. This is a one more infraction and you're done so we know before it comes what this means yeah then we're back checking back in with the fbi this is a good finale usually find some way thematically visually etc to loop back in with the first episode we're sitting in their Mm -hmm. fbi office they do a nice job of looping us back to mr ruggiero's neighborhood and we get the drop that junior is recovered we haven't seen junior for a while he's had a slower yeah Back half of season three, since the uh, Dr. Kennedy episode, we get the sense that he's going through treatment and there's not much else there is to say or do. Yeah. But he's out and the FBI is scheming. Their lamp plot went to shit. <laughs> and someone they're, has they're, the. They're, they're so funny. The lamp plot is foiled. They mentioned that. That gets a good laugh. But also, like, uh, when they announce that Corrado Soprano is recovered, they're always just like, he's mocking us. It's like, <laughs> guys, Junior's not running anything. Just come on. <laughs> I do believe uh, Agent Cubitoso, Frank, the, the boss, the head head dick in charge over here, 
mentions that they're going to try to reschedule his trial now that he's uh, his health right. problems have a it, so. it has been rescheduled for like 30 days from then yes yeah so we'll be getting back to that now that he's no longer in treatment they can get back to prosecuting him he was under indictment this whole time let's not forget that yeah but they're trying to figure out their next in what is their in i guess this Let's not forget Ray Curdo, one of the captains, is, is snitching. We found that out in Pro Shai Lavushka, episode two of this season. But he must not be giving him enough. So they need some other in. The topic of the nephew, quote unquote, being Christopher, comes up. And they're going to try to get to Christopher through Adriana, mm-hmm. which we can discuss in a scene later in the episode. Seems like it might actually be one of the first decent ideas they've had. Yeah. So we talk about that, but they bring in this female agent that we have not yet met. And they ask her, how big can you make your hair? (laughs) Funny scene. We'll come back to that shortly. That scene is so great because it does in three minutes what the first episode kind of took like 45 minutes to do. These guys are immediately hateable again, if anyone forgot, not too likely, but like uh, uh, Motosante is engaged to a lovely young thing. I was like, oh, these fucking guys. <laughs> and then um, the, I think similarly when they, the, we haven't, the audience has not yet seen the young woman, Danielle, uh, Lola Claudini plays her very beautiful. All of them are like checking their breath and combing their hair before <laughs> she comes in at the great little moment. Um so yeah, I wondered if this was going to be another boondoggle, but we'll get to the uh, the payoff later. She does a great job with her hair. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> Richie April, no doubt the cartel had him whacked. All right, so we're back in the projects in Bootin, and Jackie's playing chess with Lena. Yes, a very symbolic game of chess with Lena. Michael K. Williams is on a show. You're going to get a chess metaphor. It's just going to happen. That's right. Yes. <laughs> the Wire has a big one in its first season. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, oh, that, that chess game rules. That's just good writing. Uh, it's just, it. you know, it's for anyone that watches this show on the academic level, Jackie trying to do too much as a pawn is, I mean, it's a little on the nose, but it's also great. And then he, when he can't win the game, he, you know, wrecks, wrecks the game, <laughs> you know. Yep. Uh, you know, even, I, I think uh, Michael K. Williams' character uh, Ray Ray even even says uh, the way she's developing her knights. I mean, they're cl- they're closing in on you is basically what's what's being said. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and Vito will ultimately be the knight that that gets moved in. It's smart writing. It's well acted. I I love when he just smashes it, and Ray Ray tells him, you know, you should have played that out. It's the only way you're going to learn. Uh, unfortunately. We're past we're past the point where school is an option for this guy. And in the next scene, when he goes out for I think he's going to the store, maybe. Yeah. Vito unceremonious. This is not well, I and I love the way they did this, by the way. This is not what I'm about to say is not a knock. We've had so many awesome visual kills in this show. Matt Bevilacqua felt like an old gangster movie. Like he got a Sonny Corleone treatment. He was just riddled full of holes. When the two assassins go after Tony in the first season, we got slow-mo, we got exploding orange juice. We got car chases. When the show wants to flourish violence, it can. A director like John Patterson can make violence glamorous, but no, that's not what this is about. This is about Vito getting out of his car, simply putting one bullet in the back of Jackie's hand head 
and he falls over in a filthy snowbank in the middle of a housing project. And yeah, that's listen, yeah. As as Patsy Parisi says to Gloria Trillo in the previous episode, it won't be cinematic. Yep. You know, just uh, and you know, Jackie probably would have fantasized about a death worthy of a Goodfellas or a, a Godfather. But you know what? He gets shot in the back of the head. It's super fast, and he just falls down on the side of the road, and that's it. Yep, it's over. Yeah, he says he's he says he's going to the park to see a guy. I thought he was going to pick up something. Mm. So there's that. Also, yeah, the death is very unceremonious. It is quite sad that it comes, uh, of course, right after this. As Jordan mentioned, it seems like quite a metaphorical game of chess. Also, seeks to some of Jackie's pampered upbringing how and will eventually become the question for aj needing toughening up what's the young girl's name the little girl lena lena Lena, yeah obviously she needs no such toughening up whatever it is growing up in Booton, growing up in these circumstances her outlook and her vibe is such that she's developed this sense of both strategy and risk she's the army of one yes she's the one apt and ready for this for this warfare um, metaphorical though it may be and yeah it is it's quite sad uh j- the way that jackie ultimately dies i agree with you chris i think uh patterson made the right call in filming it this way yeah and honestly this next scene breaks my heart it's a simple scene there's not much in it but this is a low-key sad scene in this episode uh, full of scenes that have a melancholy to them. We're at this social club that Ralphie operates out of, and he's on the phone with Rosalie. He's fighting about something, the mechanic, whatever, and wants to charge too much. And she's already pulled the trigger, but he wants to get a second opinion. And he sees Vito come in and he just sees the look on Vito's face and he knows what's happened. He knows that it's done. And Vito looks very sad and withdrawn. He clearly wasn't a task he enjoyed. And Ralphie just gives up on the fight because he knows that he knows the pain that's coming for Rosalie. And so he just can't, he doesn't have it in him to argue anymore. And then also, you know, listen, I'm not going to be home. I got, (laughs) I'm going to be home late because he's just on a selfish level. He's not going to put himself through the, the grief. So that happens. That scene just makes me feel awful. And then we get the, uh, back of the Bing, the show with its mood swings. I'm dying laughing at Tony's temp tantrum because I've been there. I've been there where you're you, you share a house with somebody or whatever, and you're tasting something in the fridge and you come home and it's been consumed. <laughs> <laughs> he kicks the door off the fridge. I'm dreaming of that fucking low main all the way the fuck over here. Now who came in here and ate my shit? And the fucking look, the look, the look Paul he gives him. It's like <laughs> just puts his arms up and sits back like huh? <laughs> so good very funny but you know even the fact that i'm laughing at something like that right after the shooting is just an impress so impressive to me but paulie brings up the 50 g's the check cashing store they gave him the alarm codes tony says i'll talk to him no i want to sit down so this is this is a sit down for those of you who are unfamiliar is basically like mafia court you get it resolved in an official capacity and the boss of the family or if you're a smaller level gangster your family's cop your 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 crew capo is going to make a ruling and that's it so this is you're looking to get it you're taking it to arbitration so paulie wants an official sit down and patsy comes in carmella has called the bing 
crying. This is an interesting moment for this because I think with what just happened with Jackie, we may have forgotten what's going on with AJ, that these two things are happening simultaneously. And I remember when I first watched the episode, Carmel is crying. I'm thinking, he's oh, they've just heard about Jackie. Of course. Yep. And then he gets home. You, you can tell from the look on Tony's face, I think, that he thinks it's the Jackie call. Because yeah. he grimaces and deliberately takes a moment. And then it goes to another place when he says, what? Because it's a, it's a curveball. Yeah, it's, not, ju- it's right? not just anger. It's shock. Yeah. So very good. And he goes back and AJ, permanent expulsion. This scene is something. I do not advocate hitting kids at all. But, but, but I got to tell you, I didn't hate Tony for the smack when it came, you know, that's, that's a, but (laughs) that's a different story. This is uh Tony's frustrated here. This he's they're having trouble getting through to this kid and it's not as dire yet as Jackie jr. But this is, they've been, you know, AJ is not on a good trajectory and him not being in school is not a good thing. Well, you know, the, the, the purposeful parallel that, that is, is, you know, really at the forefront of this episode is um, the parallel between AJ and, and Jackie Jr. And, uh, you know, he could not save the one son. Can he save AJ? Can he save his, his own son? It, it is that dire. Uh, and now he's all that emotion is loaded into you know, ultimately hitting AJ and screaming about uh, sending him to, to military school, you know, yeah. Um Normally, we would think of this as being outrageous, but I think coming off of what we just saw with Jackie, we're like, well, they got to do something. Yeah. I love when she mentions the school that has a therapy on staff and he says no more fucking schools to coddle him. He's going to military school and we're going to we're going to talk about them individually beat by beat. But the arguments they have about this are some of my favorite scenes from this episode. This where to send AJ because I've heard similar things throughout my life about various people and it, it's mm-hmm. it's it, i think they they got it there's a there's a hint of real of it just feels right to me the way they argue about this and their feelings on it and that they get so heated over it the doubleness of these characters lives and the various hypocrisies have brought them to this point and it brings up a lot of the weird moments as well as the funny moments in this episode what I'm going to talk about here is not particularly a funny thing, but in the, in this same scene, it's, it's tough to watch. Carmela mentions the school for troubled kids. I did scoff a bit at that, but when she mentions the psychiatrist on staff, I think Tony says, come on, will you again, enough with the schools that coddle him later, they're arguing about the military school and Tony pauses in the middle of the argument to take Prozac. <laughs> it's like, dude, I mean, it's okay for you. It's not okay for them. And as if that point weren't already there enough, it's hammered home because then AJ passes out and it's like, yep, can't escape it. Of course, Tony then has a fatalism in the way that he thinks about it. Uh, yeah, this is not an easy scene. I didn't love it when he slapped him, but of course I get it. Of course I get that both of these people are actually seeing, as Jordan said, that something's got to be done here. And this is, if it's not dire yet, it's getting there. Yeah, there's also, I, I think, um, a fundamental misunderstanding of how AJ kind of got to this point. Carmela is favoring this school. I, I think the name of the school is Burnwood Day, is the name of the school that has this therapy program that kind of um, is a little bit, to use more of, of Tony's word, coddling 
right? And Tony's going to favor this place that we're going to talk about, which is uh, the, the Military Academy, I think. Hudson, H- H- Hudson Military Institute. Thank you. Um, and, you know, I, I think they're, they're both thinking that it's like where AJ goes to school is what matters. But that's not really true. I'm speaking as an educator. Um, it, it is not so much about the school you go to. It, it really isn't. Uh, I know that uh, there are some parents who, you know, they swear by private schools or charter schools, or there are some parents who say, no, they, they've got to go to public school and learn a little bit about real life and private school is just going to coddle them. Your upbringing uh, is so much more about your family and the people that you've surrounded yourself with in terms of your, your friendships. Um, and I'm saying this as a teacher, I'm saying that of those things, we're, we're third, you know, in terms of your, of your development. It's, it's absolutely your family. It's, it's your friendships. It's, it's who you are and how people that are close to you in your life respond to you. Them picking the right school now, uh, it's, not, it's not really helpful either way. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I, I understand them as parents are trying to do whatever they can. Let's put them in a, a school that has an on-site therapist. Let's put them in a school that's basically boot camp, you know. But AJ's already a young man. He's 14 or 15 years old much of him is already developed into this person, you know, and this person needs love uh, more than anything else. He doesn't need a structure that is prescribed in the way that Carmela is thinking of it or the way that Tony's thinking of it. He's deprived of love because he's part of a dysfunctional family. They'll never be able to just see that. Yeah. And no school will fix the fact that he will forever bear witness to the hypocrisy at home. And yes, AJ is not as intellectually equipped as Meadow is to deal with it. And Meadow struggles with it. So yeah, what's AJ to do? It's a whole different animal with, with, especially in this culture with a boy, because Meadow, whether she understands the concept or not, and what, whatever her emotional reaction to what her father does and the hypocrisy she's witnessing it, the, the fear of Meadow joining the mob is not something any of them are worried about or, or going down into that path. Whereas with a boy mm. in this culture, this, yeah. could get da- this could get dangerous fast. Yeah, Me- Meadow has a certain uh, modicum of self-preservation that, that AJ just doesn't have. He's, he's the weaker sibling in, in every regard. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, his upbringing is just going to prey on him. Yeah, but guys, the United States military hardly goes to war anymore. Because <laughs> this episode this episode was released in May 2001. Fucking hilarious. Now, yeah. I want to just briefly touch on it because I think you guys are so right about the, the hypocrisy of the family. And Jordan, I really appreciate your perspective on what influences kids growing up. Again, feeling for both Tony and Carmela in this situation, I wasn't necessarily willing to say that either one of them was like completely right or completely wrong. I guess my critique of Tony's perspective is that it seems like too much of a catch-all, leaving Mm. aside whether or not military school would be like a good idea. This image that Tony has of AJ going to military school and this complete 180 happening feels like too much like the Gary Cooper concept. Like, this is how we completely change this iconography. And it's like, I think it's a lot more complicated than that, yeah. as this episode will force upon the main characters. Absolutely. The call comes while they're looking at brochures and having dinner. 
Jackie's dead. Roe is despondent in the background, as any mother would be. And this poor woman has now lost her husband prematurely to cancer and Jackie Jr., her son. So she's despondent. Carmela is a good friend, goes right over there. Tony looks at AJ. You see, they're trying to drive it home to AJ that this is what can happen if you, you know, of course, Jackie notably dropped out of school. Previously, there's, you know, so Tony's trying to draw that parallel for AJ. AJ calls Meadow on the phone to tell her. She <laughs> she lets him in on the DNA thing. Moron, it takes six weeks to get a DNA test. Yeah, come on. <laughs> so they had our DNA. <laughs> <laughs> then she drops it. She, I mean, he drops the bomb and she drops the phone. Uh, it's, it's just an instant, like, holy shit. When you're, I was in my early thirties when I first lost a friend who was a contemporary, when you're in college, you're not expecting your friends to die. You're just not, unless somebody has a off the wall health problem or is involved in something like hard drugs or gangsterism. You're, you're really, you know, in a healthy situation, you're not. 21, 20 years old, 19, I think even in Meadows case, possibly waiting for your friends to die. So this obviously comes as a huge shock. And then we get this therapy scene, Melfi. Imagine the shame for the family. You certainly saw it coming with this boy. In the end, I failed him. The fuck are you going to do? But he's determined not to make the same mistake with AJ. He talks about Meadow wanting to be a, wanting Meadow. He talks about wanting Meadow to be a pediatrician. That's something she is interested in and then he drops this quote aj in my business he'd never make it and he's right for the very reason that i think we touched on this in the first beat of the show it's too much he's he's just doesn't have it you have to have a certain something to be in the mob and that's not what aj has he he might have the if if his upbringing continues this way. He might have the detached sociopathy for it, but I don't know about the acumen or skill required to be as successful as his father at it. Yeah. He's just too soft. Uh, I mean, AJ is just, I mean, l- listen, who can say, I mean, the kid has more growing to do, but it, any, anything we know about these guys and their young life and the shit they were already pulling at AJ's age, like, uh, there's just no way it doesn't seem like AJ would be able to do we're starting to question if AJ can live like a normal life just like a handle the normal responsibilities of adulthood forget mafia adulthood hmm. I agree and by the way not for nothing the kid has me lie massacre written all over him this kid is a million this kid is a Milgram experiment fucking disaster um <laughs> he cannot think for himself so I mean, he, he has he, he gets contact tie off a kid pissing, and it's like, oh, I got to piss too. Somebody tells him to burn a village. What's he gonna say? No. Yeah, this is not good. Um, th- this scene is great. I love this scene in therapy because I think as we've been talking about, there's a doubleness here. Tony, of course, feels protective of his children, but he is in essence saying that he'd prefer for the one to stay away from him in some respect, and the other one needs to stay away from him. He can't be in this business. Yep. Mm-hmm. We get the scene with Carm and Meadow. Carm drops the line. Well, he knew the risks. Meadow drops some some sad stuff here about Jackie and how he felt like nobody gave a shit. And it, it just further drives home that he slid through a lot of people's cracks to get here. It's not just on Tony. But then again, it also is on Tony because 
you know, he ultimately ends up getting killed by the apparatus Tony is helmed. So it's complicated. We're, we're dealing with something that is tinged with truth, but is also obscured by the, the big lie that all of these characters have to tell themselves. On some level, Carmela knows that Meadow is right and sees through the bullshit. And But Carm, great acting here by Edie Falco, by the way, when she makes that switch, goes over, opens up the, the blinds and gives Meadow that whole speech about boogeymen to blame, boogeymen with Italian names, whatever it is you think, and you know, get it out of your head because that is not what happened. She doesn't believe that, but she has to believe that. Yeah. But this is a great scene. Uh, Ad Falco acts the shit out of this. She's a total queen. Yeah, the two of them do great work, and Meadow is so perfectly placed because part of the scene is that you can't really fool Meadow, not in the same way you fooled AJ. All they said to AJ was that in that scene a few minutes ago at the dinner table, all AJ heard was that Jackie Jr. died in Booton. AJ then, in his fucking genius, put it together. Well, he was doing a drug deal with some black guys, and they shot him. He's like dead. Um, nobody else said black guys, but yeah. AJ's lack of the connection is exactly what the mob guys want. They want the lie. Meadow sees right past it. And Carmela, as you mentioned, Chris, I think very uh, in character is making this, this deal. And as much as Meadow is smart, there is something regressing in her character in this episode. She doesn't even want to get out of bed in some other sequences. She's acting quite immature. She drinks too much in the last sequence. I think all this stuff is coming together in, again, this maddening way for these characters where maybe they're asking and we're meant to ask what is their role to play in the larger story. What's their personal responsibility as Jordan mentioned at the top here. And it makes for great drama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Can I ask you a question, Paul, please. Is this how you envisioned yourself, your future self as a young man, a podcast host? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Are we going to talk? Are we going to talk about that? Yeah. We're uh, that's, that's why I uh, did that. We enter Tobin bell for the, for those who are not into the horror genre. Jigsaw. Jigsaw. <laughs> he does a good job with this. It's just hard not to hear that voice. He has such a distinct voice and distinct face. I mean, well, he, that act, that actor's ruined. I mean, he can't he can only <laughs> play Jigsaw. I, I mean, what what else can he do? I bought him. I bought him as this this hard ass military school teacher. But I mean, well, this actually predates the Saw movie, right? Right. Yes. Just yes. slightly, a couple two two three years. Yeah. Um, no, Tobin Bell, I mean, he can't have a career other than doing Jigsaw. I mean, that's that's it. That's the same <laughs> thing that ruined um, uh, Robert Englund, who plays Freddy Krueger. He can't play any other roles. And also the same problem with, um, oh, gosh, why am I forgetting the actor's name? The actor that played, he, he's tried to have a career. Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Ted Levine, yeah. Ted Levine. Ted Levine's a great actor, and he's popped up in a lot of stuff, but he's always Buffalo Bill. You just you can't not see yeah. that. Yeah, that's funny. Well, he's here and he's the head of the uh, Hudson Military Institute. And <laughs> he lays out this uh, blueprint for total discipline that'll take AJ through the rest of his life. And um, AJ, do you want to play a game? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. That's hilarious. Yeah. Maybe this is what Jigsaw was doing before he got cancer. He got cancer from all the smoking and. Uh, that's, that's it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. But uh, definitely one of my favorite Sopranos one episode characters is Major Zwingli, as played by Tobin Bell. 
Yes, Major Zwingli. That's right. But go to the core. The core, the core, the core. He's funny. A lot of great lines here. But he lays out this. I mean, basically, these kids are up for formation. It's, you know, they're up making their beds at you know, 530 in the morning. They're doing formation and drill. Then they have classes. Then they have more commander's time or whatever the hell else they're doing. They're studying all night in the dorms. I think it's like 1030 lights out back at it. And ah, I don't know, Jordan, you're the educator here. I'm obviously both of you guys have great insights on many things, but you heard this, uh, you, you heard this pitch you heard, what do you think of the Hudson military Institute as an educator? Uh, well, this sounds like hell on earth. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, forget as an educator, as a human being, uh, no one, no one wants this, um, but I'm, I'm not a military person and I'm, I'm not anti-military, but I, I could never subscribe to that kind of life. I don't know. I don't know what that does for education. Listen, if Tony's looking for structure, this is this is all this place is is, is yeah. structure. But I wonder, it kind of replaces one kind of life not being led very well with <laughs> another kind of life not being led very well. I don't know. AJ is sort of directionless, and uh, you know he's he's doesn't really know what's going on in his life. But this basically this doesn't really teach him how to live a better life. This just yeah. replaces his life with being right. a ro- a robot basically. <laughs> Well, let's remember, too, that the Sopranos knows what they're doing on all fronts. And they made this character slightly not to the point that it's bad. Actually, this is good. They made the character slightly over the top by casting Tobin Bell because he's got such a distinct voice and personality. And I think the cynicism of this kind of education, it drips through from David Chase and Lawrence Connor by the fact that he's talking about all this discipline. And then the second AJ leaves the room, he has to open the window and smoke a cigarette. Yeah, there's your there's your discipline, right? He can't even stop his own bad habits. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, he also um, I got to tell on myself a little bit here. Uh, alcoholism runs in my family. So I remember watching this episode for the first time with some family members and we all start looking at each other because half the friggin lines that this guy drops are AA slogans. Like it's happening throughout the scene. He's talking about the cynicism of the recovery for profit industry. He's taking a cigarette break. Anybody who's been to an AA meeting knows an hour in there's a break and more than half of the guys go outside Um, because people, because, and I'm not, I'm not being judgmental at all here. People replace one addiction with another happens all the time. And this guy says to AJ, I will give you this blueprint for total discipline and structure that will take you through your entire life. And then I need a cigarette out the window. Everybody needs something. The major needs the cigarette. Tony needs the pills. There is no total discipline. There isn't. Yeah, extremely well said. I, I And I agree wholeheartedly. I Yes, kids need structure. This might be a little too much, though. That's just my opinion. I, I'm sure that's not to say that military school might not help certain types of people. So I'm sure many people get a fine education at places like this. I agree with Jordan, though. I, I I need a little bit of unstructured time in my day. But structure is important for some kids. It all depends. But I agree with everything you said. Yeah, I, I, mean, look, I, I say this all the time as an educator. School is not for everybody. I know that's crazy because we send everyone to school. But mm. many people are totally intelligent and, and totally creative and, and wonderful people. And they just they can't sit in a fucking little desk all day and move to the next room and sit in another little fucking desk. I mean, it doesn't the structure doesn't work for all of them. It probably doesn't work for AJ. I wish there was a type of alternative school for him. Military mm-hmm. school is certainly not going to do it. It's just going to, th- I think, 
had things worked out at Hudson for AJ, if if what happens later in the episode didn't happen with his anxiety attack, panic attack, uh, I think we might have actually seen something worse develop. Because again, the problem comes from prior to attending the military academy, right? Yeah. It, it's not going to be fixed by it. It has to be fixed where it started. Yeah. And this, of course, was around the time the army started using the slogan, uh, be an army of one in their commercials and their pitch packages, their materials. So this became the army side. I don't I'm not sure if it's still the army slogan. It, it, it is not. And also I did a little light research. They dropped it shortly after starting it because it's kind of a hypocritical message you're not an army of one when you join the army. You're, you know, you're you're part of something greater than yourself. Army of one kind of confuses that a little bit because it it tries to market to your individuality. But ultimately, being in the army is not about being an individual, and that's okay. But that slogan is confusing. Yeah. Well, even in this scene, they have an argument about it. I like Tony's point. What happens when somebody says "fuck it"? I'm not going over the foxhole, you know, because they've been told you're an army of one. And uh, yeah, so they they even have the debate about the the silliness of that of that particular slogan in the episode, which I thought was great. I love Carmel. I like that they're sorry, Chris. They're barely listening to him because they're kind of having their own argument. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. Uh, and they're so absorbed, and I think their hypocrisies are coming through in that scene, as Jordan mentioned. Like the, the pitch here from military school to an elite private school dorm life the attention from the teachers and Carmela actually responds to that but she's her objection is there's not enough emphasis in this world again being the army and being uh focused on the core the whole the group it's not focused enough on individuality and creative thinking um just before she left the house to come to this appointment she told her daughter to get these ideas out of her head and stop thinking independently because that's not what happened. That's definitely what happened. So these characters <laughs> are like pulling their own heads apart with all the different roles they have to play. Yeah. And the battle continues back at the Soprano house. They're there. They're, we join the mid fight. Tony's popping his antidepressants. Carmelo's yelling. You want to train him to be a professional killer? Would you stop? The United States army hardly ever goes to war anymore. By the way, Paul, you mentioned that this was aired in May of 2001. What's even more crazy to think about then is what that would mean is like, let's say it worked out at Hudson Military Institute, Carmela would have this in the back of her mind somewhere. AJ would start school September of 2001. That's insane to think about. And I actually have a funny personal, well, I don't know how funny it is actually. It's a person, it's a wild personal story that my brother was on an army base signing his papers when 9-11 happened and it got shut down. And he, you know, so that was a whole thing. Wow. Like, he, yeah, he, had, wow. he had, yeah. So his like, I his military ID card said signed up on September 11th, 2001. He didn't sign up because September. He wasn't one of these people. It's like I'm going right down to the base. He happened to be signing up and got locked down on the base when the attack happened. So that that's a just a wild bit of personal thing there. But anyway, stranger than fiction. Yeah, seriously. Mm -hmm. So. This argument's continuing. They talk about the rifles. They're symbolic of what? Respect. Tony. <laughs> the barrels are plugged. Carmel is just not having it. Neither of them are giving an inch here. They're, they're screaming at each other. We rarely see them get this intense. It just speaks to how frustrated they are with this. Tensions are fraught because of what's going on. And they really are at, a, at an impasse here. On one hand, 
I see Tony's logic of we've been doing it your way for 15 years. Let's try it this way. And Carmela even comes to see it after the harrowing funeral experience. But it's tough because they are missing the point that this issue is a home problem, not a school problem, which is what we've been talking about for the past hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. AJ is tuning it out, by the way. He hears them yelling, slamming doors. He just turns his music up. I love that little shot of AJ just, ah, fuck this, turning up his music. That's how much he's invested in listening well, to that. Well, it's not that he doesn't care, but it's that he... Can I offer a different reading? Please. I, I don't think he's turning... Well, your, your reading is valid, but I, I think he may be turning up his music because he's upset. Um, and he doesn't want to hear them yelling about him, which oh, yeah. is something I used to do. Um, and I know that his face could just be that he's disinterested. I, I don't know. I actually read it as like emotionally. He's like, I can't handle this. I have to just drown it out. Sure. It, it, well, it's never fun. I haven't, thankfully it didn't happen as much with me. I was the, I was the well, well-behaved brother of the two, but it is, <laughs> there were, there were occasions growing up where it is awkward to hear your parents fighting over you. It sucks. It's not a good feeling. No, I actually, I think it's kind of the worst feeling in a way, because you never like hearing your parents fight to begin with. It's actually sort of traumatizing if it happens often enough. Yeah. And now the fight's about you. It's about something you did directly. You're you're to blame. Right. Yeah. This will all mount to ultimately AJ collapsing. Right. I mean, this is it's all yeah. building. It's building. Yeah. Well said. Then it's funeral time. Uh, I had to write. I wrote. Just, <laughs> I wrote. It's signs of our internet culture i wrote the letters lol when i saw paulie waiting by the fucking door to ask him <laughs> to sit down at a fucking yeah. funeral for a 21 year old kid <laughs> so, come on man Jesus christ can i bury my best friend's kid <laughs> <laughs> oh is this maybe again like the show insisting that it's a black comedy? Like there's still these funny bits. I think so. Then the the sit down is very funny. Even though, yeah, it's heavy. I think it's very heavy. Even though it, it was well done, uh, the transition. Am I getting this timeline right, Chris? That the transition from the fight where Tony's slamming the door so hard that it pops back out, and then one of the slams transitions to the door. I think to the funeral home creaking open yeah. as they come in. It's, it was rough. Yeah, it was. And uh, I got to commit, you know, I know the acting I talk about on the show constantly, you could every scene point out how good the acting is, but Sharon Angela with Rosalie here, uh, I bought that she was, I've seen people doped up to numb emotional pain and I bought it. Like I'm like, Oh, she took something. It, it was such good acting. I'm like, oh, Sharon Angela must have taken something, but she's probably just that good. And, uh, you know, it's sad. It's two days before the Super Bowl. No one's there. Eugene Ponacorvo is yakking in the back on the phone, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, Tony makes him step out. I like that moment. Open coffin, it to me, is when you when you actually we're used to it as a culture, when you actually think about it, it, it's kind of a strange human tradition, isn't it? Open coffin, oh, especially yes. for someone so young. It's bizarre. Yeah. If you really actually think well, about what, what that's all about, it gets it gets weird. Sure. Uh, almost, almost every relative in my family had an open coffin. I think they all did had an open casket. Um, yeah. I, I hate it for this specific reason, other than the sort of ghoulishness of it, is um, you're left to comment on the corpse 
like a common thing you will hear at funerals is they look so good or they made them look so what the fuck is that just if i die please close the lid or better yet put me in a box <laughs> put me in like an urn i don't want my mortal remains gawked at yeah. and made a spectacle of i i hate it i i hope maybe for some people that helps i know it's it's for the bereaved it's not for the person who has passed but it's it's uh not not something i ever was comfortable with not something i like i don't know maybe that will change as i age i don't know it's discussed i think thematically and dramatically because we're all actors and storytellers and writers but in the show six feet under why we grieve the way we do these questions about grief and why we have the traditions around death that we do is well explored in that show. So maybe another day for another podcast, but uh, yeah, I agree. It's a, it is strange, especially, especially for someone who a was went young and B went violently. Those are like two things that I imagine them not doing an open coffin for, but you know, it's, it's sad. You see your, the person you once knew and loved all caked up and, it's it's strange. It's a strange experience. And it, it kind of forces a reaction. Like, how could you see someone like that and not be overcome, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Meadow loses it the second she lays eyes on him. Carm is like, oh, I'm not ready for this. It's rough. It's a rough sequence. This is tough. If you care at all about any of these characters, this is hard to watch. And it should be hard to watch. This is one of those. Uh, Meadow. Sorry, Chris. Meadow falling into Carmela's arms is kind of the perfect uh, visual format for this episode because Meadows' oscillation is between independence and regression. So she's getting more independence of mind in this moment when she sees Jackie caked up in this casket. It's finally too much, and she needs her mother's comfort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. More on the black comedy front. Janice hawking her awful Christian Roxy. Oh my god. <laughs> She's just insufferable, but so funny. So funny. Yeah, yeah. Her her and Aaron Arkaway uh, of uh, Have You Heard the Good News fame cut this <laughs> cut this CD that's definitely going to be picked up by Sony. So he better... Uh, yeah, and I love the fucking reaction where Cozzarelli just looks at it oddly and stuffs it at the bottom <laughs> of his pile. Shuffles it into the pile, the desk pile. <laughs> Goes right to the bottom. <laughs> It's been a little bit since we've had some time with Janice. So that, that's a fun little touch down there. And again, a lot of the sequences we're seeing now and for the rest of the time we're spending in this episode as we're wrapping toward the end is our callbacks to seeds that were set earlier in the season. We're going to talk more about that. But we get this sit down scene. God oh my! Oh, sorry. But well, before the sit down scene. Sorry, I know but there's two things we got to hit before we get to the sit down. First of all, Chris pulls Tony over and apologizes. And Tony no sells him on it. Mm-hmm. So that's for Christopher apologizes for what he said in the last episode. I guess the sight of Jackie's corpse might have changed Christopher's tune as well on that. But you know, things were said in that discussion that Tony's not just gonna let go. Yeah. So. Tony, Tony gives him the high hat. He really, really does. Mm-hmm. Chris, Chris told him that I loved you past tense. I mean, yeah, that's not something Tony's just gonna forget. Yep. And then we get this brief touchdown in bed later. Carmela is coming off of this terrible wake. I think this is the wake, actually, not the funeral. And uh, coming off from this experience and lays down next to Tony and says, let's try it your way. So she's ready to do the military school. We'll get back to that in a moment. But then we get the sit down scene. Uh, 
First of all, Paulie, I got here first, cocksucker, because he probably showed up late <laughs> thinking he wasn't going to be the first one there. That kind of posturing means something to him. It's so fucking funny. They're well, talking I might be uh, I might be on time tomorrow, but you'll be stupid forever. <laughs> Paulie gets up. That almost starts a fight. I love that. Oh, what a great line. <laughs> a lot of great lines here. I like they're talking about Green Grove. Yeah, you recommended it on your recommendation. And Tony's like, I never recommended it. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, eight grand a month, we get so we get a forty thousand dollar deposit in the previous scene, and then we get eight grand a month. Oi, Marona, me. That's uh, and then they question his ability to pay it. <laughs> I love Paulie's line here. You see, see an eye dog over here, cup full of pencils. <laughs> It'll be tough. <laughs> <laughs> But he wants to do this for his mom, and that's this. It, it provides an immediate stake, and the fact that they cast somebody so lovable as his mother also makes us, in a way, rooting for Paulie here, and we can sure, sense sure. we can sense his desperation for this money. And it's also frustrating because Ralph is such a prick, and we know the kind of money he has that he could honestly, if it shuts to my my personal opinion, because I'm not a greedy man. If it shuts Paulie Walnuts up and gets him out of your face, here, take 50 grand. I'm kicking up 300,000 to the boss, which means I'm taking home over half a million. It's like, come on, man. But anyway. <laughs> Tony mentions in this scene one of the things that he says. He says, okay, we know it's not five. But it, like in Ralphie's defense, he says, these guys did the heavy lifting. We know that Ralphie makes a lot of money for Tony. Does the decision also not go too much? farther Polly's way in terms of compensation for the intelligence because Tony knows, even though in many ways it was forced upon him, that Ralphie did a heavy lift in this episode. Ralphie mm. took care of this business that Tony wanted nothing. He did not want to be anywhere near it. So it's, I don't think it's necessary. He doesn't mean to insult Polly, but Polly is ultimately insulted by this number, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I was just trying to, I couldn't exactly figure out a reason why um, the numbers seemed a bit low to me. Again, not like a deliberate insult, but Paulie takes it this one way is the reasoning for it. Again, something a little different. Yeah. Tony awards him 12 and a half in the sit down, which is only a quarter of what Paulie has asked for. And um, the number seems low to me as well. I think you're yeah. meant to hear that as the viewer and be a little surprised. Ralphie's not unreasonable. He's mean, um, but uh, it, it is just maybe Paulie deserved maybe just a finder's fee. Uh, Ralph really did the job, but I think Paul's right. The job he really did was killing Jackie Jr. That's that's really what's in the in the sauce here. Yeah. You know, yeah. Paul, I mean, Paulie takes this personally. I, I don't necessarily blame him. Twelve, twelve and a half when you're asking for 50 is low. Yeah. Um, and Tony could have played this a little bit better. Like, Polly, I'm only going to give you 12 and a half on this, but I'll make sure you're taken care of. Or I, I understand why you want this money. We'll figure it out for you and your mom. But he he doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's 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 rough. Yeah. Another great line here. It says, I, I'm leaving almost 30 grand on the table. I can't fucking believe this. And Ralphie says, why not? Last year, you believed you saw that flying saucer over East Rutherford. <laughs> <laughs> Ralphie's, so Ralphie's got a million. Yeah, Tony has to admonish him. I'm not going to tell you again. <laughs> <laughs> but Paulie is ready to keep arguing. He's not willing to accept this, and the attention gets sucked by Furio on a cane. He was shot in the previous episode. You got to laugh 
you, you, you slip on some ice, drop a nice fachim. Yeah, I'm going to laugh. I thought it was funny, but everyone gets up and rushes over. And Paulie's sit-down is over unceremoniously. They're all attending to, to Furio. Yeah, I mean, that, that Furio spill is intentional because it's like Paulie can't even be ameliorated by someone's comforting words. Yep. That moment of maybe where he would have been comforted, the comfort is stolen by someone that needs his comfort, the comfort more urgently, someone who's injured. Yes. Let's talk about this payoff real quick. Uh FBI, we see this Danielle character approaching Adriana in the store, and Aid is immediately yakking about Tony and this kid who died. Oh, and God, you know, just maybe they have an idea here. There's something to this. Aid just talking to her as if this is someone she's known for years. And I bought it. This is like, sure, this is a conversation that would happen in the store. And of course, she's done her homework. I was just going to go sit with a Starbucks. Must have been monitoring her behavior. She Aid probably goes to the mall, sits at Starbucks, has a routine that she's following, and the FBI agent's done her work. And uh, they're talking about shoes. They're talking about all this stuff. And it's it's a match made in heaven. In the opening episode of this season, the FBI guys were stupidly and comically like always worried about getting made by the gangsters, sometimes indeed getting noticed. Uh, in spite of wearing like a stupid hat or something, this woman's right in front of Adriana. She's not close to getting sniffed out. She's they're talking about new shoes and some of them ill fitting, but this woman has walked right into this role. She's good at it. And it's so it seems like this maybe won't be a boondoggle. It's one of many deliberate forwards in this episode. This, this season finale of all seasons finale so far is the most deliberate and focused on setting up, slingshotting into new storylines for the following season. And this is an intriguing one. Yeah. Well, because seasons one and two both could have been it. You know what I mean? At this point, season three, as long as HBO had anything to say about it, Sopranos wasn't going anywhere for a long time. Sure. So that, you know, whereas seasons one and two, they had to almost make them so that if this is the end, we have these awesome things and they exist, but everyone on the show at this point knew there was going to be another season. So they're able to do more of this at the end. And by the way, I want to talk about character building here before we move on three seasons worth of character building. Chris and Adriana are supporting characters. They're probably popping up in the first season, maybe three or four episodes together. Second season, they get a little bit more, maybe five, six episodes. Chris gets goes through getting shot. But here's why this is a threat and why we know this is going to be a big problem already with this FBI agent. What is Adriana's number one flaw? She does not have a good eye for character, for people. She is yep. a miss. She, 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 you know, the fucking from visiting day to her dalliances and show business. She doesn't have an eye for people or and, and her choice of fiance, by the way. Mm-hmm. She's a bad judge of character. Yeah. Listen, the FBI finally made a good call on something. She's she's a, a leaky faucet. She's a way into the family. Yeah. So, uh oh. We're back home at the Soprano house. We get to see the commercial that Dr. Freed was shooting in the previous episode. (laughs) Nice little touch. I know this guy. Imagine getting a surgery like that. Uh, And and then, oh, Sergeant Bilko. AJ hates it. AJ comes down the stairs in his his dress uniform, crying already. Boy, you got to feel for this kid in this scene, huh? It's rough. It sucks. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Come on. That's, That's tough. 
I don't care not, who you are. That's, nine, that's tough. Yeah. 99, that's 99 tough. times out of 100, you roll your eyes at AJ because he's a spoiled little shit. But mm-hmm. this is this is one of the times where it's like, this just sucks, man. You feel for him. This kid has no chance. <laughs> yep. And, uh, he, you know, he looks in the hat. Tony is yelling at him. Keep, you know, I'm standing fucking straight. Keep it up. God damn it. You know, the the threat the threat is there he's only he's already slapped them right so tony is insisting on the quote new regime and they're measuring him and he wants him to put the hat on put the hat on for your mother and uh here we go call back again to another season three episode fortunate son where aj passes out in the football field knocked out passes right out on the floor they race to fix him up open up his collar and get him together and then we cut to tony in therapy my son has panic attacks and he's in absolute nightmare dread mode. Melfi assures him it's a slight tick in his fight or flight response. The third generation of this. Yes. And potentially more as Tony relays this story about an ancestor he had who mm-hmm. uh, drove a cart off a mountain with a bunch of olive oil and it, could have, <laughs> it was probably a panic attack, he says. And I, I don't know, he might be right. So he's going to sue the school. <laughs> it's funny to hear a you know, it's such a sign of the times when a mob boss is threatening a lawsuit. I just love that. But the scene ends with the sad line of dread. You don't understand. Help me understand. How are we going to save this kid? Cut to the coffin getting pulled out of the hearse. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on this scene, this therapy scene here, because I believe this is the last therapy scene we get for season three. Well, ominous, uh, portentous. Uh, you know, this is... You know, some some might even say heavy-handed, but this is you know this is the the last punctuated parallel we get between Jackie Jr. and AJ. But also, it offers you know maybe some closing commentary on what the show has had to say about young men thus far, mm. and um, the perils of them being associated with mob life and not really having good father figures and good mentors. And is this the fate that will be shared by AJ? Tony's worries are very much visualized. They're on display by the fate of Jackie Jr. in that coffin. Yeah. I feel that this scene is also that that's that's very well said, but both of you. I think also as much as these characters can be hypocritical, there'll be more to say about hypocrisy, even in what's left of this hour. But again, not really feeling comfortable completely condemning anybody. And I think part of that, for example, even though Tony had his reasons earlier to be angry at these schools that, in his words, has, had coddled AJ, here his very understandable frustration is with a school that was not looking out for his kid, not informing the parents that he had had a, a medical episode. Of course he's frustrated as well as angry. Of course he's frightened and upset as well as uh, full of rage. So I, I did feel for him. And I guess, yeah, it's trying to make sense of all of that. Yeah. Cut to the funeral. This is one of our last, uh, we have two sort of large sequences to remain to come, which is the, the funeral followed by the meal at Vesuvio after the funeral, where we're going to tie everything all together here, but a lot happens in this last 10 minutes. So let's, let's run, let's run through this here. The Essex County Sheriff's office, not the FBI making a bunch of arrests here uh, at the very, funeral. Very funny. Very funny. Yep. Silvio's shit talking to him. I'll be out. Last time I got out so fast, my soup was still warm when I got home. So it's such a good line and a line I've been thinking about ever since I rewatched the episode. It's a very <laughs> good line. Yeah. 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 
Everything, every Super Bowl, the DA tries to grab a few popcorn headlines. <laughs> Silvio Assassin cops. I love it. Junior and Bobby have a hilarious moment here where they pull <laughs> <Yes>. up. And- <laughs> Junior literally scampering away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, like obese Bobby running after the car. Junior arms flailing. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you told me 11 o'clock. <laughs> Jesus, so fucking funny. You have to drop these laughs in, though. The Sopranos has to drop these laughs in. Otherwise, it would just be a lot because Rose grief is tough to watch. Meadows sobbing. I had a moment here where I saw Tony and AJ making eye contact in this graveyard, and I was brought back to season one of Meadowlands, and I just wrote, he's, yes. not, he's not winking now, is he? No, no. So this is dark stuff, and it's sad. Hey, Chris. Could I say something briefly about this funeral? It's it's all coming together here, and it's it's really rough. I will just mention briefly that, not for nothing, in the last episode, Sharon Angela as Rosalie April had me laughing my ass off with like the blow jobs and the yeah, she's, yeah. <laughs> she can be very funny. And here, of course, she's breaking my heart. With all due respect to Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood, this season started in earnest. In Pro Bushka, that's when the emotional trajectory begins. Sure. And that episode ends with Tony not being able to mourn his mother because she didn't have that uncomplicated love for him in the equally mean uh, Jimmy Cagney movie. And I think in a bittersweet way, maybe even deliberately, this is The Sopranos payoff. You want the uncomplicated love of a mother? Here it is. Yeah. Watch Rosalie April at this graveside roar like the King Lear roar at the end of the play. Um, Sharon Angela, all-time MVP, terrific actor, uh, very tough scene. She's in the grand scheme of The Sopranos. She's not in a ton of it. She pops up when she pops up. She certainly makes an impression. But here's an interesting story from my personal life. Back in 2006-7-ish, Michael Imperioli ran a theater in Manhattan called Studio Dante. And they offered acting classes. You had to audition to get in. And I was attending Hofstra at the time as an undergrad. I think I was in my sophomore or junior year when I noticed that these classes were happening. And it was like Michael Imperioli, Vince Curatolo, who plays Johnny Sack, and Sharon Angela were teaching the acting classes. And so I wanted to audition. And I remember... Even though Sharon Angela, as far as and I was, I was young and you know, I was I was young at this time, so I was into the glamour of the Sopranos and the glamour of show business. But even though Sharon Angela, Rosalie April isn't the biggest part on the show, I was fucking thrilled that she was teaching this class that I was considering taking because mm. it's like, oh, this is someone I want to learn acting from. Yeah. She is. She's she's a solid hand. Every scene she kills, she she maximizes her minutes on the screen. She whatever you need her to do, you throw any. She's one of these actors. You feel like you can throw anything at her and she will hit a home run every time. Very game. Yeah. Yeah. You want to give her a funny scene out with the ladies bantering with Artie Bucco. She's going to nail it. You want to give her a funny scene with, you know, kind of lingering around the guys having fun. It's there. You want absolute total unceremonial grief here it is it's great she's tremendous i can't say enough good about her and she really shined in this episode for unfortunate reasons but uh, great stuff i agree paul yeah, thank you thank you for bringing sharon angela up in such a way i agree back to the house ralph 
again, totally selfish sociopath. He he just wants to zone out in the TV. He, you can just tell he just can't wait for this to be over. He's sitting there just watching TV while the ladies are chatting in the kitchen. Uh, I believe it's Jackie's sister. And, and, and uh, Kelly, her name is, I've yes. seen on the on the credits. And they're talking with a cousin, I, I believe. And they have this interesting conversation where Meadow does a Carmela here. She mm-hmm. she learned. She learned. Yep. I wrote and, in my notes. I was like, oh, Meadow learned a trick. So <laughs> Meadow's now speaking the party line. Yeah. Like, fathers are in sanitation. What do you want? I was like, this is a Carmela line. And also the fact that you would say this in front of outsiders is amazing yes. to me. Yeah, she, she's... Uh, well, uh, I, I thought, I was like, I think Meadow's kind of stepping it up into the mob life. I think this is, this is uh, you know, a little foreshadowing. Yeah. And we're going to Vesuvio. Junior is looking pretty good. He's noticeably balder. I think they they took the hair, what remaining hair he had off there. He's like a kind of a clean, bald look. But this is the most vital we've seen him in a little bit. He's not wrestling with the cancer anymore. Good here. He's already eaten by the time everybody gets there because he probably went right there from the funeral. You know, good gravy today. He's in bright spirits considering the occasion, but he's beaten cancer. He's out and about. I guess it could be worse for the old man at this point. <laughs> Kid was always a dumb fuck, though, wasn't he? <laughs> the penguin exhibit. Yeah. Then he almost drowned in almost. Didn't he? And, uh, you know, look, we can say whatever we want about Jackie April. I, I don't know that this assessment is necessarily he wasn't the brightest bulb. He just didn't have the, the brain for any of this and wasn't she didn't didn't know. Didn't play to his strengths. And, you know, these guys just kind of this is how Jackie Jr. is going to be remembered amongst people talking about him is 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 this right here, Tony and Jr., which just adds to the tragedy. Oh, yeah, that Jackie's dumb kid that got shot in the housing project. Yeah. Jesus. Yep. What, a, what a shame. Mm-hmm. Sad, sad stuff. It's dark. <laughs> but Jr. says he's going to stop and smell the roses. The illness changed his whole viewpoint. I'm sure that's going to last. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you need roses to smell. That's the key. But we'll get into that in season four. And uh, this scene out in the parking lot. Well, first, I want to mention this. Another callback to a previous episode this season. Paulie made one of the biggest stinks back when the Ralphie situation happened in university. Two episodes later, he has risen. Ralphie turns down a drink with Tony. And it's the biggest deal. What a, what a sign of disrespect. Now it's Paulie turning down a drink from Tony. So it's a display of hypocrisy. It's a callback to that moment. Things are not good. And we find it. And, and, and then we get this interesting, another little dangle for season four. Paulie's out having a smoke or Johnny's out having a smoke. Paulie's leaving. And uh, we get this Johnny sack Paulie scene. Paulie's complaining about Ralph and the money and Ginny can get heavy. There's some you know comedy lines there. <laughs> yeah. The, the restraint <laughs> that Paulie must put in to not say anything there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Johnny, of course, with the same line of bullshit, eh, I don't stick my beacon, but this is, that's exactly what he's doing. And Paulie, uh, you know, here's the thing. This Esplanade is a shared, this is, and I think, I'm not spoiling anything here. I think this is the implied undertone. Ralphie is a key man in this Esplanade construction. There's a lot of money coming in, and this is a joint New York, New Jersey project. So Paulie having some kind of gripe with Ralphie and Johnny making a friend out of him could be very advantageous for Johnny. And Paulie asks about Carmine. Johnny says, hey, you know, he asks about you. Tell him I said hello. Interesting. Is Paulie going to switch sides? 
what is this all about? Is Paulie going to be working more with the New York family? Where are we going from here? Interesting thread. I'll stay away from spoilers on it uh, as per our policy. But if I'm watching season three, I wonder what you guys think. Even though this scene isn't long, there's not a ton of detail. It definitely seems like enough to point us to trouble. There's been enough troubling things with both these guys that I think them coming together feels like nuclear disaster. Like Paulie's divided loyalty is kind of a problem. Johnny didn't tell Tony that he was moving to Jersey, kind of sticking his beacon again, like some red flags there. The two of them together, like Paulie's divided loyalties coming in. Johnny now possibly having a way to stick his beacon without sticking his beacon. Yep. This would make me feel like, oh, God, not good. And I want to mention, because I think Sopranos almost has an equivalent line. Yeah, Star Wars has. I have a bad feeling about this. I think Sopranos has an equivalent line. That comes up because anytime somebody says it, bad shit follows. Richie April told Matt and Sean in season two, there's ever anything you can do for me, let me know. If there's ever anything I can do for you, Paulie says, if there's ever anything I can do. That's a line that says trouble's coming because you're either going to do something for that person or that person is going to expect something from you. So this is bad news, this Paulie Johnny meeting. Sure. Well, I think even a, a casual Sopranos viewer needs to have question what exactly Johnny Sack's presence is on the show and now it seems that he's like kind of this um, undercurrent like a quiet threat and now this is how it's going to pop up um, so if Ralphie is like the overt threat or like a more obvious adversary for the next season Johnny Sack is the one that's kind of right behind him and you're looking for some interplay there and it seems like Paulie's the linchpin yeah get the scene between Carmela and Meadow in the car this is when um, Meadow is clearly been drinking and Carm's like, I'm glad you see. And Meadow goes off. You're using this as an excuse to be more abusive and controlling. That's not what I'm saying. She, you want to use it against AJ. And she says, use it against him. Meadow, Meadow is unraveling here. She's regressing. As Paul said, each scene she gets one minute, she's this one minute, she's that, but this is the, this is the Sopranos universe in a, in a whirlwind scenario here. She's, She's towing the family line, but she's down in the booze and yelling at her mother the next. And what's going on with Meadow? It's going to culminate in a scene from now. But at Vesuvio, fucking Janice and Ralphie. Yuck. Oh, my God. Could there be a worse thing? Uh, you want to talk about bad vibes going into season four? Yeah. So there, sitting on a, yeah. That's the A-level threat is those two. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ralphie, you know, Janice has been a little dormant uh, for the past few episodes. Ralphie is clearly not good with Rosalie. He just doesn't want to be around the grief. He's going to selfishly not want to be around it. And she's sitting on his lap laughing, hitting him. It's just an immediate, oh, no, what is this now? And we know what trouble occurs when Janice gets involved with Tony's colleagues. So, mm -hmm. yuck. And then we're basically playing out the last beat of the episode here. Junior starts singing. Everybody kind of hears him and encourages him to get up and do a song. Ah, what the hell? I beat cancer. Now I'm going to beat the can. He uh, starts singing Corte Ingrata, uh, which is uh, Ungrateful Heart, which, which is, is the we, title of our episode today. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Meadow keeps downing booze. We get a shot of just the tray with her hand pulling drinks off of it. 
Bobby and Johnny are blubbering as Junior starts singing, just tears, and everybody is looking on, rapt, emotional. Tony pulls in AJ. Uh, well, Meadow eventually starts throwing bread. We're going to talk about this and break it down in more depth. I'm just kind of running through the events here. After the second or third time throwing bread at Junior, Tony chases her out. She runs out, and as he's chasing her, she turns and says, this is such bullshit. Yeah. And dashes across the street in a way that is difficult for Tony to follow. And he goes back in, pulls AJ close, tells him, don't move. We don't know what AJ's future holds, but we see that Tony is on top of him right now and that AJ has his full attention, at least for the moment. Yeah. So uh, so my reading of that moment would be uh, Meadow actually does the correct thing mm. in running from this and saying this is bullshit and running away. Yeah, she's drunk. She's out of line throwing bread at her poor uncle, a uh, great mm. uncle. Um, but this is bullshit. And she's, she's running where? Presumably back to school. That's good. Get get away from the family, Meadow. You're doing a good thing. You shouldn't be disrespectful to your great uncle, but good, get out of here. AJ's the one that's got to worry. Tony's pulling him in close. That's a problem. Yep. And we're played out here. Junior keeps singing. Everyone's crying. Silvio's wife mentions to Aid when she asks, what's that mean? Corte Ingrata, Ungrateful Heart. And we get this strange outro where they overlap three different songs and uh very we, odd very odd. We, we can talk about that in a sec and then they play out thoughts on this final scene and Leia, let's talk about this last sequence and then we'll give our final thoughts on the episode proper so since meadow started drinking at the party as you said chris i think she's been like sort of sort of sputtering it's been it's become increasingly difficult I also agree with Jordan. I think it's it's the right call, or, or maybe it was just there was no other way to go. She had finally had enough. This going back and forth. Uh, when she's talking to Kelly, the first thing Kelly says, of course, one of my favorite lines, as Chris already mentioned, is Jackie was killed by some fat fucking see-through socks. Alarmingly yeah. accurate, <laughs> in fact. And Meadow does this interesting Meadow does this interesting thing in that scene. I know I'm calling back to a previous scene here, but it's a bit where you describe something that you want to discredit and you deliberately make it, I think, sort of larger than life. It's kind of like making a straw man claim out of someone else's claim to beat it down. And she says, yeah, our, our dads do some illegal stuff and they rub up against organized crime. But do you really think they control every sleazeball and illegal gun in like a hundred communities? Meadow, wrong episode to bring that up. These guys found out in five minutes that that yeah. kid was in Booton. They control a lot in North Jersey. They control a lot of slime balls and they control a lot of guns. She's the one being naive. And it, it's all going back and forth. It's too much. And I agree again with Jordan that I think it was just bullshit at the end and she had to run out. Um, it, it all became overwhelming. That was my note. Yes, Meadow, it is bullshit. I, I, I wrote that down in response. Uh, when I was younger and couldn't was going through it my first time, you 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 have different you have different kind of brain when you're different ages in life. And when you watch the show, The Sopranos, certain things stand out to you as you get older and as you change and as you experience life, which is what makes it such a cool piece of art. But I always thought Meadow was being petulant and childish here in a way that annoyed me when I was younger. But now I'm like, oh, no, she, I mean, yes, she is being petulant and childish, but 
she's absolutely like, what, what else is she supposed to do with this? This is all fucking ridiculous. The misery and the hypocrisy of it all. And these guys are all just sitting here blubbering uh, to this, yeah. to this love, so- to this Italian love song, like, you know, as if they didn't create the very bed of misery that they're all crying over. Yeah, well, th- that's it. I, I mean, I-, I think this scene is sort of meant to s- stand in-, in juxtaposition to the the season one finale where Vesuvio was a place where they all gathered as a family and they felt a sense of community that was not ironic in any way. Mm. And then in this scene, Meadow sees is, is totally disillusioned and she sees that the this is a facade and that all of us, you know, standing around and crying at this monster <laughs> singing this song the same monster that has plotted to kill probably everyone in the room at some point <laughs> and overcome with the circumstances surrounding Jackie's death and uh, seeing her brother being trapped by her father i mean I, it, it's all too much for her and and this is good this is good for meadow it, it is bad for these other characters that don't see the same thing that she does and to your to to, to give direct credence to your point as to why Vesuvio is a good place for this and calling back to that season one scene, Meadow actually references that dinner in the car on the way here. So there's a reason they would write those lines in at this time, because you're supposed to call back to that. So that gives direct credit to your theory there. Yes. And as to the, the strange ending with the three different songs, Oh yeah, I don't get. I I'm gonna just be honest. I don't get it. I don't understand to, why they did to, that. I think I think honestly, it just speaks to our cynicism that we're giving to this here. It's just sort of uh, to me because David Chase personally picks every song that goes into this show. That's one of the known bits of trivia about the show. Is David Chase has a hand in every bit of music. To me, this is my interpretation. It's just sort of like yeah, yeah. Insert any sad Italian song here. It's all the same bullshit. Like it's just like you. He could be singing anything here. And they're going to just react this way because they're all full of shit. Insert insert sad ballad here. That's kind of the message I got. Yeah, I think that's fair. This is one of the things I remember when I first watched this episode, I did not like stylistically this ending. Um, it's still not my favorite Sopranos ending, but I think I can appreciate a bit more where Chase is coming from on it. Uh, all the songs are in a foreign language. Uh, Junior singing an Italian song. The next song is in French. The second that's played over is in Mandarin and the last one is in Spanish all over the world. And in different languages, songs are used to get the heart pumping and get those tears flowing. And I think that that is the commentary that we've all seen for me when I was younger. I think what didn't quite latch on was that all these songs are very sentimental. Sopranos is not a sentimental show. And this moment I don't think is sentimental. The characters are sentimental. Very important distinction. David Chase, among the other elements that he's so great at, is the music. And I will say David Chase comes from what I'd call the Kubrick school of music. He changed the way music was done in movies. Then it influenced people like David Lynch and Martin Scorsese, and they influenced David Chase. It's not just mood music. It's not just decoration. It has a relationship to the narrative and thematic thread of a story. Um, so I, I can appreciate what he's doing here. It's not my favorite thing ever. It was, I think it's decent. I might've just played out with Dominic Chianese doing that the vocalization of Corin Grata, because I think it's so great. And it, it also pulls on the, it's a shoot, right? I mean, that's real, right, Chris? Dominic Chianese can belt out a number. He sang before pre-COVID, he actually sang in Manhattan at this bar 
weekly and I'm killed. I'm kicking myself for not going back when that was happening, but yeah, wow. he's a, he's a singer. And uh, I'm, I'm actually going to toot my own horn for something totally stupid here. I have a very liked comment on the YouTube video of him singing this track. Uh, basically at, at some point, if the, the Sopranos cuts him off, but at some point at the end of the song, he just starts whistling the tune over the guitar and I made a comment, the old man's whistling through the wheat field. And <laughs> it's got Beautiful. like, yeah, it's got like 15 likes or something, you know. <laughs> so that's one of those dumb YouTube things I'm proud of. But Beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that's kind of my take on it. Final thoughts on this episode, guys. Uh, you know, my, my final thought, generally speaking, just on a, on a big watch, I think a lot of the things I want to talk about relate to the season as a whole. So I'm going to hold off. I want to talk on the retrospective about how this might be the best season yet. And at the same time, when I look at the show as a whole, when I finish it, season three slips under the radar for me. And I think I want to talk about why that is on the retrospective. But overall, very solid finale. Great follow up. Amorfu is probably the strongest episode of the season uh, and, and in many ways serves as a de facto finale. But Army of One is a hell of an episode. It touches on a lot of strange emotional notes, sets us up for what seems to be a great season four. And it does some unconventional things with the formula they've established from seasons one and two. I give it a big thumbs up. I loved it. And uh, rest in peace, Jackie Jr. And we get to keep Ralphie for a little longer. So Big thumbs up from me. What do you guys think? See, uh, Army of One. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this finale. Um, again, it, I agree. It's kind of overshadowed by the the previous episode of Morfu, but it's it's still a great hour of television. It's mostly um, you know, you know kind of just capping all the storylines that have resolved and the and the threats they set up for the next season are certainly interesting. It does kind of lean on you to start really wondering about AJ and Meadow. And what their future is in a way that is perhaps more pressing than Tony's mob threats. So it's interesting that I think the thing that many viewers might be most interested to see is how the health of Tony's family, like his his blood family, evolves going forward into the next season. Because on the mob front, while things are not quiet, they're not dire. So what what is dire is potentially Tony's relationship with his wife and children. So that that was an interesting turn for me. Yeah. I can't do much better than that in terms of the deconstruction of the actual episode. I, I will say that I'm grateful among many things that I was able to come back over the last, indeed, 20 years since this episode first aired and reevaluate it and rethink and come at it from a position. I wouldn't say I've become more mature over the past 20 years, but I've figured out some shit anyway. So I can appreciate more of where they were coming from and how good this storytelling is. And as we go into season four, I'm going to have to eat a big batch of humble pie because I didn't love season four when it first aired. It's now one of my favorite seasons. So this show continues to pay dividends. Um, and the unparalleled joy is talking about it with you guys. Fucking hell. You guys are the best. Right on. Hey, man, I love you guys, and I love doing the show with you, and this is great. I'm excited. Uh, the retrospectives are always my favorite episodes to record, so I'm, I'm fucking pumped about the Season 3 retrospective. We got a lot coming up. We're going to do our usual bits. We're going to pick our favorite episodes, our favorite quotes, our favorite music and food moments, all that great stuff. We're going to have Lily with us. We're going to do listener mail, which is a new thing we're doing on this retrospective that we haven't done before. I'm very excited about that. If any of you out there have anything you want to share with us, it can be a comment about The Sopranos. It can be a comment about our podcast. 
It can be a question for us. It can be anything you want to send us, love, hate, whatever. We're going to read it and talk about it on the retrospective in a new segment. So send it our way. That's the Sopranos podcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media at the Sopranos podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Sopranos podcast on Twitter. No, the, and that's what's coming next, our season three retrospective, and we're going to keep uh, plowing through season four coming up. I feel similarly to Paul. It was a season that I think was misunderstood by a lot of fans when it first aired, but is now reflected upon as like, holy shit, that really was great, wasn't it? So we're going to talk about that episode by episode, the same way we always do. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mantini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you for our season three retrospective. Thanks to all you Army of Ones out there listening to our show. Thank you, thank you. One day at a time. I got myself a gun.